Welcome to episode 31 of Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you the coolest string players alive. My name is Matt Bell. This episode is super exciting for me. I've been a fan of Zach Brock ever since I discovered Snarky Puppy several years ago. And after hanging out with him for a few hours, I'm an even bigger fan than I was. He's an incredibly talented player, but he's also a great musical mind. He's obviously a very technically proficient player and a super creative soloist, but he's also a talented composer. We're listening to one of his tunes right now called Yeah, Yeah, Yeah from his 2015 release called The Magic Number. This episode is brought to you by Electric Violin Shop, the one place on earth where you can find the most incredible selection of instruments, effects, amps, and expertise for electric strings. More on that later. Now, I caught up with Zach between tours in New York City. It was a beautiful day, so we hung out in Central Park to chat. You're going to hear some normal Central Park-type sounds, but nothing too distracting. So let's get on to my chat with Zach Brock, rock star violinist. So we're, uh, we're hanging out here in Central Park, New York, just enjoying a really nice day. Zach's got a cup of coffee. And uh, got to go pick up your kids in a little bit. Yeah. Enjoying uh, some, some daddy time this summer, right? Oh, yeah. Definitely, always. So you just got back from uh, some trips. You were telling me that you uh, have, have done a couple things this summer already, right? Yeah, This the beginning of the summer has been a little bit hectic. Just got back from a festival in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, it's an organization out there called Off the Hook Arts, and I've been coming out there with a trio that I play in called Triptych with Matt Eulery and John Dietemeyer, who both live in Chicago, two of my closest friends, uh, personally and musically. And we have, yeah, we've gone out there maybe three times over the past couple of years, and came back this summer for the summer festival to do a piece of mats called Become Giant that we premiered last summer um, and we did it with the Miami String Quartet so that was that was really it's it's a crazy piece because it's basically electric and acoustic violin sort of depending on what's going on with bass and drums and then string quartet oh cool um, so we did that and a, and a couple other shows while we were out there and before that, I was teaching at Mike Block String Camp down in Vero Beach. Um, with a week of vacation before that, and before that was uh, in Morocco with Snarky Puppy. Oh, nice. And I'd never been to Morocco or Africa, for that matter, and that was amazing. Yeah. So that's a, yeah, that's a big group, man. That's, that's big budget stuff to travel all those guys. Huh? Yeah, yeah, it is. How many do you all travel when you go? Gosh, I mean... Everybody's flying from different places, and uh, gosh, I, it, 
it sort it does vary a little bit, but I think it's generally at least always, you know, eight to ten people on stage, or eight or nine people, and then of course the crew. Right. So um, you know, crew, uh, road managers, etc. So yeah, it gets up there. Yeah. How long you been with them? I started playing with them. I figured this out. And I forgot, but I think it's been at least 10 years. I, I started playing with them on their second record, okay. which was called, uh, was it Bring Us the Bright? I can't remember. Sorry, Snarky Puppy fans. Uh, <laughs> all kind of run together after a while. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm done now. Uh, it was the second record. It was the first one that Bill Lawrence, the pianist from England, played on. That was when he joined the group. And I had met... Mike League through John Dydemeyer, the drummer I just mentioned who lives in Chicago because John was actually the first drummer in Snarky Puppy. Okay. And um, they, you know, obviously were, were friends, played together, and John had been doing other stuff and was really doing like real straight ahead jazz and, you know, working on that, came back to Chicago. Mike was looking to expand the, the touring radius of the band out of the Denton, Dallas area mm-hmm. and he'd been going out doing little jaunts here that was when the, the band could just fit in a, in a, in a van right um, and so he was just talking to friends that, that had friends that lived in different parts of the country trying to hook up um, you know talk about sharing tours or sharing shows and just expanding the radius of the you know, touring ability like that and that's how I met Mike came down to Dallas a few times you know, playing on a few sessions with him and doing some stuff, and then played on that record um, on Bill's tune, which is called 34 Klezma. And he just wanted some crazy, crazy stuff. And that was also, like, right about the first year that I had started playing with Stanley Clark. And so, you know, Mike and I were, you know, talking about that, about these jazz jazz heroes from the right. 70s and stuff like that, and, think kind of you know had a lot of common interests and inspirations from that too anyway that's that's how that happened and I basically have been on all the snarky puppy records with the exception of the family dinner records that they do with the singers and stuff like that I was not on those and the one that they did in Europe I was not on that one that was the year my daughters were born oh yeah and I was staying here and um, yeah. Otherwise, for a while. For a while. Yeah. So you are a native New Yorker then? No. I am a native Kentucky. Okay. And uh, I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, are you a UK guy then? Basketball-wise? What is that? Did you go to school there? Oh, I thought... <laughs> uh, I did do some summer school, actually, okay. in the UK. Um, I went to Northwestern in Chicago, which okay. is where I... That's where I met my wife... And, uh, I lived in Chicago for about 13 years, and uh, but yeah, I, I started. I grew up in Lexington. That's where I started playing music with my my family and taking Suzuki violin lessons and getting into that. And studied with, uh, gosh, well, my first violin teacher's name was Judy Vasic. She now lives in Perth, Australia. Oh, nice. Uh, and then my second violin teacher was Ned Ferrar. And I studied with Ned up until, I think, my last two years in high school. And then I studied with uh, Peter McHugh, who was in Louisville. So I'd drive 
you know, an hour, hour and change to have lessons with Peter, who had been the concert master of the Louisville Symphony, and he was kind of like the head of the string program at U of L. And then I went to Northwestern and studied with uh, Myron Cartman, and that's how I met Chuck Weintrager. Right. Okay. I was going to ask if, if that was a Chicago connection. With that's Chuck. a Chicago connection. Awesome. Chuck was. Chuck had been studying. I can't remember if Chuck was. Chuck started a couple of years before me, or just a year. I can't remember. But for that reason, I will always look up to you, Chuck, and for all the other, all the other musical reasons. Personally, not so much, but you know, <laughs> but musically, definitely. I just spent a week with him at Mark Woods Camp in Kansas. An amazing guy. Yeah, cool guy. And uh, we've got an interview coming up with him. I interviewed him a while back, but we're waiting for some music to come in so that we can uh, fill that interview out with some tunes. That's cool. So then Northwestern was a music school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, I was already, by the time I went to college, I was, I've basically been into improvising since I was a kid, but I, of course, didn't start out improvising, you know, in jazz. I started improvising, messing around with little folk melodies, you know, mm-hmm. like that. Um, I remember, like, this one tune that I was playing with my dad, and he taught me the blues scale, you right. know. And that was like the Rosetta Stone. You know, it just changed my life, really. I mean, it really did. Um, and, and to sort of hear how, you know, the, the freedom of, of learning that, you know, series of notes and the inflection, it really connected something for me that, you know, got me really, really excited more and more about that. Um, and I, you know, I think I originally got into jazz because I was studying so much classical violin and, you know, I was really impressed with Stefan Grappelli. I mean, sure. you know, who isn't? He's an incredible violin player. And I got, in, you know, more interested into learning, you know, jazz in that way. Uh, and then as I started going out to jam sessions and stuff, my, my dad's a trumpet player. And I started to, to learn that the, the repertoire that I knew from the Stefan records was not the same rep that was being called in any of the jam sessions. Sure. It's kind of becoming a, you know, a little bit of a problem. I was getting kind of stressed because I didn't know what to do. Um, and so I, that's when I started checking out, you know, Sonny Rollins and Coltrane and stuff like that. Um, that was probably when I was in, in high school. It's not like I wasn't practicing eight hours a day or anything like that. I was skateboarding a lot, you know, and getting into lots of different stuff. But there was something about that that... Um, also it just really really excited me and I felt like I saw a slightly different path for myself this is all of course pre-YouTube pre-internet right and you know back when you could actually believe that you were the only person in the world that had ever thought about doing that one thing yeah (laughs) that uh YouTube has certainly destroyed that yeah yeah exactly um so anyway uh my circuitous, my circuitous story is that, uh, you know, I've been into getting into improvisation more and more and more, but I really wanted to continue my violin studies because I knew that there was a lot of, a lot of stuff that I needed help with still. And also, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I had no idea, you know, really. You knew I, you wanted to play? I knew I wanted to play, but even that was kind of, for me, a decision that happened late. Okay. You know, and I, I mean, I, I don't think that I finally, you know, realized that this is something I wanted to actually 
do and that I needed to really start getting more responsible about it until I was probably about 16. Um, that doesn't mean that I wasn't always still playing music. and you know, I guess that's the benefit of having a, a good music peer group. Right. You know, for, for me, I, I really relied heavily on that. Um, and, uh, but when I was 16, that's probably when I really started practicing, <laughs> trying to practice. Right. And uh, so I went to Northwestern, and uh, Dr. Myron Cartman is who Chuck and I study with. And he was the, the elder, uh, had been the head of the string program when Northwestern had a dedicated string program. And uh, also, I was really lucky in that he was also the most open-minded. And that, you know, he sort of said, you know, somebody told him that I was improvising or playing jazz or something like that. And he basically said, you know, cool. Like, whatever you want to do, I think he said it in more colorful language, you know. But he's basically like, whatever you want to do. As long as you show up, you know, with your scale, your etude, and the first page of your sonata or concerto or whatever, you do your work for me and do whatever you want, you know. I later found out from his son, who's this amazing cellist, that he's like, ah, oh, you know, I don't know if dad would want me to tell you this, but do you ever see that Joe Venuti Hot Licks book that he's got, like, stashed in his, you know? So his dad, uh, Myron Cartman, who is a native New Yorker, had been touched with a little bit of jazz fascination you okay. know, back in the day. So I think uh, I got somewhat of a pass from that. That's awesome. He's a closet jazz guy. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So then after, uh, after school, did you just do undergrad at Northwestern? I did. I did the world's longest undergrad. And uh, I don't know. I think it's, been, it's far enough away from the time. that, And also, uh, Dr. Cartman's retired, so you know, what are they going to do? I'll, I could tell the story here. <laughs> it's basically that when I was a sophomore in college, I got hit by a car. I was on a bicycle. And uh, it was a pretty severe accident. And I was out. And to make a even longer story, slightly shorter, I, I was basically out of school for three and a half years. Oh, my goodness. And then after that, you know, when I came back, of course, everybody that had been in my class graduated and stuff like that. And Northwestern, it's, it's a little problematic when you get off the track because it's a quarter system. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff that you're doing is, you know, .33 credits. Right. And they're not offered every quarter and stuff like that. So it took me, it took me a while to get out, and, uh, and during a lot of that time, actually during all of that time, I was I was in really bad physical shape and really bad, really bad emotional shape. And um, Cartman never stopped teaching me, you know, except at the times when I, there was a period of a few months where I had to move home, and I was in Cincinnati for a little bit of time dealing with some surgery stuff on my leg but Cartman taught me the whole time and allowed me to come to violin class the whole time and he would not take a cent wow and he would always say he would tell my parents you know like oh don't worry it's all it's all worked out between the school and no he was he was he was teaching me you know basically for free and he was giving me a, a peer group and kind of a lifeline of, uh, you know, something positive, right. you know, to kind of counteract the, the darkness that was going on. We could tell you needed that. Yeah. I mean, it really, it definitely saved my life, you know, 
he saved my life. And uh, he's the greatest teacher, you know, just the, the really, really a master, master teacher whose main concern was always teaching his students how to teach themselves, you know, and how to give them the, the tools, like the critical tools to diagnose problems, have solutions, and, you know, constantly be working on that, you know. And that's all, that was also a big help for me trying to figure out how to do, you know, some of this weird, you know, non-idiomatic, you know, stuff that happens in jazz and try to figure out a way to, you know, adapt that with the violin sure. and stuff like that. Uh, so my undergrad lasted seven years, okay? But I only have an undergrad. So I can still just be paid as a lowly adjunct. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I got a lot of experience. Um, and, and then after that, I was really ready to get out of school. And, um, and I had already been playing in some bands in Chicago. Yeah, I was going to ask when the, when the whole playing out thing. I mean, you said you'd started with some of your dad's stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, I still, whenever I would go home, and even after the accident, that was another thing. Know, that really, really kind of saved my life is that when I had to go back home and I couldn't be in school anymore, my dad was still playing like weekly gigs with some really great elder local musicians. And uh, so in that way also, my, my education was, you know, continuing. I didn't feel, because I was home and I was with my dad with friends, I think I was less self-conscious about, you know, being a full leg cast or, you know, walking into the cane or something, you know. And then we see Axl Rose goes out with, uh, with ACDC in a yeah. wheelchair, right? Yeah, I know. What's like, a, that guy's yeah, always... I've been there, done that. He's breaking everything, that guy. good place to take a little break let's enjoy a couple minutes from a free improv that zach did at the mike block string camp in 2012 this was captured on youtube i suggest you go find it it's mind-blowing this is just a very small sample any uh, self-respecting New York jazz musician I'm dressed in almost all black of or dark course, colors right now done. so you know just roasting I'm a, I'm a rock guy but I'm on vacation so I got shorts on <laughs> that's right you got the dark t-shirt but you got the shorts <laughs> so the jazz thing had really bitten you from a very young age then yeah I think in particular improvisation okay 
Um, I think that there is there is something more about about jazz that also really really inspires me. Um, the story of it, the language, you know, of it, the fact that it is, you know, it it has all these different dialects, but yet it's kind of like. A, you know, I don't know what what do you call it? Like in in programming or whatever, it's like open source or right. you know, it's sort of like anything that comes along is going to be fair game for for you know jazz to incorporate into something. It's always reflecting back the music of the time, sure. and I think that that's something that that um, I've always really loved. I also, as I said, I, I love blues, and I got into jazz through blues. Um, and it's always weird for me to meet people that get into jazz like without blues right you know it's uh, that that definitely happens especially you know in other places you know um, in the world I mean you know where people are learning different stuff sometimes that happens um, but I love the blues and I love I love the guitar I played a lot of guitar. I never play guitar anymore, but I, there was a period of time where I was probably playing more guitar than violin okay. at a certain time. Well, there's just so many more role models in, yeah. in jazz guitar than there are in jazz violin. Yeah, but I wasn't playing jazz guitar. I was, I was like... Rocking like, out. Absolutely, you know. I mean, I think, you know, definitely before Sonny Rollins and Coltrane and all that, for me, Jimi Hendrix, mm. you know, big time. That was, you know, I had several large Jimi Hendrix posters on my wall and that you know that to me was it I don't know I, I think I was finding connections maybe as a teenager between Hendrix and between some of the Sonny Rollins stuff I think I was listening to which is really not that obvious but I don't know there was there was something about it um, that got me you know really excited yeah, I haven't met too many players that I respect that don't list Hendrix one of their influences. Oh my God, I know. And I, I, same with me. And I, I taught like four years ago. I taught like some, I was teaching a summer camp in, in Brooklyn. I was like this short thing. It was mostly, mostly kids. And I was supposed to. I don't know why. I decide. I thought that they would like to learn a Hendrix song. And they just, they had no frame of reference or desire That's great. and it was so heartbreaking yeah and also made me feel so old yeah <laughs> but then i mean hendrix was too old for us we right, weren't yeah, we weren't around when hendrix was way before our time he's, but he's our music parents before him yeah and there was music after him and they're, they're radically different yeah totally totally yes so especially in the historical context because i'm teaching my son how to play guitar and out we're sort of starting back with like Chuck Berry, and then and then you got to sort of see how each one of the, the cats, how how they what the context that they came into and how music was when they left it. Yeah, I definitely went on it. I just recently went on a Chuck Berry jag, mm. um, on a road trip with the, the kids came down to Virginia with me. A, uh, gosh, a couple months ago, so just a lot of driving. And I don't know. Somehow we got on. Chuck Berry, little Queenie, yeah, yeah. So uh, you know when he tours, he tours just by himself. Wow! And he makes them hire him a local band in each place him. that he goes. And uh, the story goes that he um, 
whatever his fee is, say it's fifteen hundred dollars for the night. He he wants two thousand in cash before he takes the stage. He says if your band is worth a flip, you get your extra five hundred back. Ah. So that's how he gets the promoters hiring some of the, the best local guys he can find. It's just sticking him uh, with, with B guys, you know. Man. Man, there's not a day that goes by now where I wish I'd, I'd you know, that kind of, like, on-the-ground savvy is just not in me, <laughs> you know. I'm so not that great at that and, and definitely trying, you know, to, to expand and get better. I love stories like that, though. It's just like, so after school, you've been playing with some some bands in Chicago. Yeah, I started playing with uh, uh, started going out to jam sessions. That that was always my my entree into whatever scene. Even just even in Lexington, you know, aside from playing with my dad, you know, or something like that, would be um, going to jam sessions. Okay, and and meeting other people, getting a, a vibe, and you know. I, you know, I, I guess I wasn't, maybe I was thinking about it like that, but, you know, maybe like a little, you know, it's kind of like a little bit of a showcase type situation too. If you, especially if you go to a jam session, you're a young player and you don't know anything and then you work on it and come back and get better. That's a, that's a really great way, I, you know, I think to, uh, you know, have other older musicians want to kind of invest some of their, their time and expertise you know in you um, that's a, that's another great thing I think about jazz and blues and any kind of music that's taught in that way that kind of really social mentoring you know type thing it's, it's hard to describe to people that you know there, there's people now that play jazz that literally came out of their basement watching YouTube videos and then went straight into a college program. Yeah, I, I don't get that. It's really, I mean, it, it's. I'm trying to not judge it. Sure. Obviously, there's certain things that I, I feel about it, but it's a, just it's a different time, and it's certainly not a kid's, you know, problem. It's certainly not anybody's fault that there's less jam sessions, you know, less musicians to do that. And actually, I don't even know if that's true. Maybe there's as many jam sessions as there always has been. I haven't been in one in a long time. Yes, yeah. that's where I did a lot of my learning. I was sort of grew up in the, in the Texas blues scene, and there were some of the older cats that were in there that could get it done. And if you showed some interest and some hunger, those guys would give you all the time that you wanted. Yep. You know, they take you out to breakfast. You sit there till six o'clock in the morning, telling stories, and they're trying to teach you stuff. And if you'll act like you want to learn, yep, they'll they'll teach you all day long. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's that's uh, I love that. And, and I, I love that so much, and that's also so, it's something that is just, it's just not the way that classical violin is taught, you know? I mean, even as cool as I was saying, you know, Dr. Cartman was and is, still it was a, a different kind of a, you know, thing. I would show up for a formal lesson and do that. And there's a curriculum. There's a curriculum, or, you know, we're kind of working on stuff. It's, you know, we weren't, like, hanging out until 6 a.m., you know, right. after the gig, and uh, yeah, it feels so much more organic. I think when it's, when it's sort of that that mentor uh, relationship. Yeah, definitely. It imbues whatever comes out of that with a certain feeling. There's a history, you know. When you play those licks that you learned from that one guy, right? When you got your egg scattered, smothered, covered, chunk topped, and diced, right? That one time, 
that you have that feeling and then people feel that feeling and, and you know that meaning of you know especially in instrumental music this sort of abstract blob of math that we throw out into the world and people somehow understand it to have those feelings connected to it yeah. yeah, it's a very, it's a very, just, I mean, just you saying that just takes me right back. <laughs> I can picture Scott sitting in front of me talking about that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, then did you leave Chicago after school or did you hang out for a while? I hung out for a while. Um, I didn't have any, it's weird. I don't know if it was blinders on type stuff or just kind of a Midwest mentality that I had, but I never had any sort of plans to come to New York. I just didn't. I didn't think about it. I don't think that I avoided it. I just literally didn't think about it. At least that's the story I'm going to tell. Sure. But then at a certain point, um, it's just kind of one of those things. Some people get get that itch, you know, that needs to be scratched, and some people don't. And I got it. And I think a lot of it had to do with a lot of the musicians that I was listening to being in New York at the time. And I really, really wanted to... There's a club in Chicago called the Jazz Showcase. This guy, um, uh, Joe Siegel, had been, you know, he, he even promoted Charlie Parker back in the day. This guy was, uh, had this club that brought in all of the greatest jazz acts, and people had relationships with Joe that went back to like the 50s or 40s. Um, it's a real hardcore, you know, old school club owner, and his son runs the club now. So the Jazz Showcase was a place where when I lived in Chicago, I could go hear, say, like a, you know, contemporary straight-ahead New York band, say like Dave Holland Quintet with Chris Potter or something like that, play for, for like a Tuesday through a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that, you know, being able to go and being able to afford to be able to go like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Right. You know, I mean, I don't even know how much it was, like maybe like 20 bucks. And obviously, you know, that that would be a huge financial burden at the time. But still, you know, to be able to go there and sit 10 feet away. Sometimes I remember the first time I, I went and saw Brad Meldow. I was sitting on stage with Brad Meldow. Oh, wow. Like it was, you know, it was packed. And we were like, I was like sitting like a few feet away from his right hand. You know, that was an amazing experience. Um so different from watching YouTube videos. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. You can feel, like, people stomping on the stage, and there's, like, smells and, like, all kinds of sensory, you know, experiences. Uh, yeah, so I got that I got that bug, and, and finally, um, and my wife wanted to try something different than she had been doing. She, she did theater and dance in school, and she's now a filmmaker, and she came to New York and uh, went to grad school in, in film and I came here you know looking to explore you know whatever I mean it was it was kind of crazy because like in a certain way I sort of knew that I was you know I wasn't doing this at the beginning so I was gonna blow up some things and I definitely did and that you know it didn't make things you know easier for for the time but unfortunately you know stuck it through that first year or two to me like for for anybody that moves to New York and 
the story that I will tell for myself is basically that you know the first year is all kind of wonder and adrenaline and excitement, um, and then the second year is when the bottom falls out. You know, and I if, if you really want to try to move to New York and, and like hang in the in the scene, I think if you can make it through that second year, <laughs> if you want to, then uh, you know things will start looking up. Um, but I lived in Chicago, as I said, for like about I mean, with school included, about thirteen years, okay. and we moved out here and um, been out here ever since. Uh, I really, I really like it. I like it a lot, especially on a day like today. Yeah, right. Here's a sample of a tune from Zach's project called Triptych. This is called Cry Face, and this version of the song is from a really cool video they did on YouTube. Look it up. playing the scene here locally a lot or are you mostly traveling? You know, it's uh, it really kind of depends. I don't know how it is for, you know, your listeners out there, but for me as as kind of a, you know, freelance indie musician, to to me the dodgiest months are always uh, January and August. They're just like rough. You know, it's like August, there's just, unless you're out with a group that's like hitting festivals finishing up in August, right? there's not really anything going on. And then like January, you're not getting paid until the end of the month and you just spend all your money. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, playing it, playing locally in New York City, as anybody will say, is, uh, is a, that's where you lose money, no matter what. I think even as a side man, side person, you basically, I mean, you, it's only subsistence level. And as a band leader, you're basically, you know, unless you're asking people to play for the same amount that you're making, which, you know, some people are comfortable with that, but, you know, I try to have at least like a certain level that, you know, I try to pay somebody, even if it means I'm going to go into my pocket. Um, you know, basically losing money, but networking and meeting up, and then going outside of the city, going on tours, and then making, making more. Right. Um, that was another thing I noticed, which I found to be ridiculous. Um, but the longer I lived in New York, I, I was like, I'll take it. Was that when I moved from Chicago to New York, the amount of money that people were paying me for the same gigs went up immediately, like thirty percent. Just that, that cost of living factor. I mean, to me, but I'm saying like for them, like they were paying me more. I guess some people think that that's cool, you oh, know. Yeah. To ha- you know what I mean? But for me, my playing was definitely not 33 percent better. You know, it was probably worse, 
because I was scuffling more, practicing less. But I don't know, you know. I, I don't know. that that was always a. I was. It takes a while for that new environment to sort of work its way through your plan, right? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I still feel, you know, in a certain way too. Um, you know, th- this option is is more open to people nowadays, where uh, you know, with like Airbnb, HomeAway, and stuff like that. That that also wasn't happening when I first started coming to New York. When I first started coming to New York, ATA Airlines was operating between okay. Chicago and New York. So I could basically like two weeks beforehand, I could I could get a hundred and twenty dollar round trip ticket from Midway to LaGuardia, um, and then. I would come in with my, you know, with a friend, and we'd come in, we'd crash with some friends, and I would just go to, like, three shows a night, you know, two shows, three shows a night, hanging, playing sessions during the day, and that, to me, still was the best way, in a certain way, to experience New York. I just made more of it. I think that, you know, anytime you move somewhere... It, and you start to fall into the routine of whatever, you're going to take certain things for granted. You know, it's like, yeah, you could, I could go to the Village Vanguard every night. Right. When's the last time that I went to the Village Vanguard? You know, it's, sure. it's been, you know, a couple months. And if I had said that to myself 20 years ago in Chicago, what are you 15, doing, man? yeah, exactly. You're an idiot, man. Um, so that's, that's another thing that I, you know, sometimes when, when, like, students ask me, you know, the, the New York, it's usually college students asking the New York question. I'm just like, man, you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, get six people together and try to get a $4,000 a month apartment that's 400 square feet anymore. Uh, when, you know, if you really want to get a taste of it or you have a project that you're working on or you just want to you know, have that experience, you know, you could, you can get an Airbnb for a month or two months, split that up, you know, and then you're basically not, uh, you know, dynamiting the rest of your life, getting stuck in a lease that's unaffordable or something like that. That's a whole nother ball of wax, which has nothing to do with violin or music, so I'll just omit that. Yeah, but, you know, getting you here has, might have a lot to do with it. Yeah. So, um, I want to talk to you about, just pick a song of yours, and we'll, we'll talk about maybe uh, how you wrote it, how you recorded it. We'll, we'll dig pretty deep on that, and then we'll play it for people. Oh, cool. All right. Let's see. Well, I think, I think probably the song that I've been playing the longest that um, I have probably taught to the most people is this tune called Common Ground, which was really kind of one of my most early stabs at really trying to write I guess I would call it kind of a mixed modal tune in a certain way uh, which involves some explanation but like a lot of the tune is is, you know like a modal tune you know more or less you can just kind of play you know with like one certain pentatonic scale or you can play sort of you know in one general key area in one part of the song, but then in the second part of the song, it starts going through some some key changes where you have to you do have to you have to reflect that in the lines that you're playing, um, and then there's also uh, like some mixed meter stuff. Okay. So there's the, the tune is basically in six, 
Um, in the second half, there is like this little odd bar of five, and then it goes back to the six, and then there's a tag that happens at the end of the tune that's in seven. And I what this tune is a is a direct response to going to see the Dave Holland Quintet at the mm. Jazz Showcase in Chicago, and um, this was also at the time that you know. Brad Meldow and uh, Larry Grenadier and Jorge Rossi were making these records where they were playing, you know, jazz standards, a lot of the same ones that Keith Jarrett Trio had played and stuff like that, but they were playing them, um, you know, playing them in seven, playing them in five. That was, you know, mixing stuff up like that. That was kind of a new, a new approach in the way that they were doing it. Of course, it's not new that people are playing at odd time signatures, but the way that they were they were playing. So I was trying to explore that in this tune. And um, when I talk about, you know, if I'm talking to a student about trying to figure out how to develop stuff on a tune, uh, I usually, you know, first you've got to sit down and identify harmonically, like, what's going on with the tune. You know, basically, is it a modal tune? Or is it a changes tune where you've got to go through different, you know, keys? Or does it combine the two? And kind of the 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 way that, you know, most tunes just come out, I think, naturally now are of the third category. You know, like in American jazz and just in jazz in general, changes tunes, two five ones, you know, three six two five ones, and that jazz language coming from the thirties and the forties and stuff like that. You know, was kind of how people were writing the tunes. You know, the tunes in the '50s, even the original Hank Mobley tunes, and you know, Sonny Rollins tunes are going to be two-five tunes. Uh, and then after Kind of Blue, you know, people started writing, you know, these modal tunes, and especially after Coltrane, you know, impressions, playing a tune where you just play in one key, or maybe you play in two keys, but like that's it. Um, which strips away the the voice leading right. stuff, which for people that have only spent all their time learning how to play in voice led tunes can be really disorienting because then all of a sudden the language that you've worked out it's sort of like you're standing there naked. Exactly. Yeah. You're like, what, what am I? What am I going to do? You know. And vice versa. If you're coming to changes tunes, um, having only played modal stuff, then it can be really, really difficult to figure out how to jump between the different keys and do it in a smooth way. Um, and that's where, obviously, the rules of voice leading and all that go into it, but so much of it, I think, has to do with the language, you know, which is built into it, all the stuff that Charlie Parker and Clifford Brown and Dizzy and, you know, all great uh, pioneers, you know, and the players before that, too. So the mixed modal thing, you know, to me, sort of, or that's what I'm calling it this afternoon. It's kind of like the tunes that you start seeing in the in the in the mid '60s, like when you know young Wayne Shorter uh, and Herbie start writing tunes and and making records. Where there's parts of the tune where it's just it's it's a modal tune, and you know the idea is to play on the colors of this one chord and it's stack up the extensions. They're 11th chords or 13th chords. Go crazy, you know, sure. like do do it all. But then there'll be, suddenly it comes to this juncture in the tune where all of a sudden, up oh, there's like a 2-5. And it's like making, it's like a little shoots and ladders kind of thing. The next thing. Um, I think that that's kind of like, 
in my experience at least, that's the way that most people write. People just sort of hear that, you know. Like if you write a changes tune in 2018, it it's almost impossible to write it in a way that doesn't sound like you're coming out of a different era or very deliberately trying to write it in a certain style. It doesn't mean you can't write an awesome tune, you know. Um, anyway, common ground. <laughs>
the other thing about Common Ground that uh, I can tell people about is that I originally wrote it on five-string violin, and it was originally written in D minor. So the first recordings I did of this tune and the first time I ever played it, I was using that o- the open C string and that kind of like floppiness of the C string on the violin yeah. to, to, to do a pizzicato. Like I, I would hold my violin more like a, a, a guitar or a man- mandolin or whatever and do more pizzicato that with my, you know, with my thumb so that I could play and have certain notes ring out and then play stuff over top of it. And I don't think that I would have written that tune were it not for getting my first five-string violin also and, and trying to kind of figure out what to do with it and being into that sound. So the technique of the tune is uh, this ostinato. There's an ostinato part that goes all the way through it. The violin plays, and the melody plays over that, and then the violin you know, can then jump to the melody. Somebody else can play the ostinato. But the ostinato and Common Ground was written before the, the, the melody on okay. top. The ostinato kind of was the thing that defined the, the chords, you know, the, the chord changes to the tune, and then I wrote a melody over top of it. Um, I've been really concentrating on four-string violin for a long time for a lot of weird reasons, you know, for me, just kind of personally, my identity as a violinist trying to figure out where I was coming from, you know, who I was, how I was trying to play the instrument. I kind of felt like after a while with my five-string violin that I was I was using it mostly for, like, effect or certain range things. I love that sound. But I, I was oftentimes just, like, going down to, like, a low note, you know, I didn't feel like it was totally uh, combined in, in the playing. And right about the time I moved to New York, I also got really, really inspired by the playing of this Polish violinist, Zbigniew Zypher. And his records are still basically all out of print. There's, like, sort of one that's out there. Of course, you can find everything on YouTube. Um, but I was having to try to find these things and, like, cut out record bins and stuff like that. And... Biggie never played a five-string violin, but he got this incredibly deep, kind of rich, earthy sound out of the violin. And that's really what I was going for more than the range, was just trying to get this other sound. And so I thought, man, if he could do this in 1976 with just, you know, four strings, and then hearing, you know, it was also a lot of the way, you know, that he was using it. I became, you know, determined to try to figure that out on, on four-string violin again. Um, so, I still have that five-string violin I wrote Common Ground on, but I haven't played it in a long time. But I had another acoustic five-string that I traded in for a six-string. So I now have a six-string acoustic electric made by Eric Aceto, and, um, and then I have his pickup on my on my four-string violin, which is basically what I'm, I'm mostly playing, although I'm trying to develop some new stuff with this six-string violin. Okay. Yeah, awesome. <laughs>
This is a live solo Zach took with Snarky Puppy on their tune called Lingus. This particular solo was from 2016 in Nashville. While Zach is jamming, I want to share just a little bit about our sponsor, Electric Violin Shop. If you cruise any of the forums or websites where electric violinists hang out and you see a question, you're not going to have to scroll very far in the responses before someone recommends calling Electric Violin Shop. EVS is widely recognized as the leading authority on all things electric strings related. Do I need a preamp? What's the best rig for my particular scenario? Which violin would suit my needs the best? How did the violinist on this record get that sound? Call Electric Violin Shop. Even if they don't carry a particular piece of gear, they probably either tried it or talked to someone who has. When Brian King Joseph needed a custom violin for his semifinals performance on America's Got Talent, he called EVS, and they got him the instrument he played all the way to a third place finish, wowing the judges and even sharing the stage with Lindsey Sterling. Speaking of Lindsey, she's gotten several violins from EVS, as well as many artists from some of the top touring acts in the world, from Beyonce to Black Violin and many others. If all of those artists can trust EVS, so can you. ElectricViolinShop.com projects for you? I know you've got a, a fistful of things that you're doing. Current projects for me uh, at this point are um, the end of August, we're recording the next Snarky Puppy record. Um, and it's looking like we're going to write the whole thing in the studio. Nice. You know, or, you know, which is kind of a first. or it, At least it's going to be sort of the longest time I've ever been in, involved in the recording process. So I'm it's looking like something like that is going to be going down. Um, and I'm working on some new stuff of my own in earnest this time. I know we were talking about that a little bit early before we hit record. But um, I'm, I'm really, really itching to, to make a new record or two and really feel irritated. <laughs> that I that I'm not doing that um, so that's 
that's definitely going to happen. Uh, this project that I've been playing with also uh, over the past year a lot uh, called Triptych with Matt Eulery and John Dietemeyer, we have a record that's in the can and we're just trying to decide how we're going to totally finish it, how we're going to release it and everything. But that's got four new tunes of mine, so at least I could I could still kind of write something. I was getting worried there for a while. Um, and we're doing a bunch of stuff with Matt, also a two-week festival in Portugal in November. Uh, so that's coming up. And also I'm teaching again at Temple University. Uh, I teach there violin studio had some really fantastic students and I really like the program a lot uh, the head of the program is you know one of the greatest trumpet players in the world he's a real kind of jazz legend dude and um, he's also super open-minded and uh, I really appreciate that it's it's not easy to find cats that are so steeped in the jazz tradition and bebop tradition that are as open to violin and this guy is Terrell Stafford. He's like, you know, he's totally cool. I think a lot of those cats are not, they're not, they haven't heard a lot of violin. Yeah. And then it's also like not aware that electric violins or acoustic electrics can sound as good as they do. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and I'm sure they've also heard their fair share of ones that sound horrible over right. the years. And first impressions... Right. Yeah, they they hear one guy on a Cecilio and they go, yeah, they just write the whole instrument. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, that's true. So that's what's, that's what's uh, you know, coming up immediately for me. And um, just glad to be playing music. Sure. You know, really, really, really glad. Anytime I start to get dissatisfied with whatever I'm doing I you know especially now having children and stuff like that you know it's been great for me from a you know just having that certain kind of perspective I think it changes the way that you think and the way you the way you think affects the way you write so like you said going through a little dry spell for a while writing it's it's, it's trying to figure out, gosh, who the heck am I anymore? Yes. You know, and then so how do I write from this place that I don't feel like I'm standing on two feet yet? Couldn't have said it any better. That's, that's exactly it. Um, that's very much it, you know, for me. And I, I've never been one of those people that writes fast or easily. It's a semi-tortured process. I'm totally willing to give that up. I'm still waiting yeah. to give it up. <laughs> Um, for me, also, like, writing always happened in a place of uh, privacy. I, my, my creative gears turn most easily when I'm undisturbed and when I'm private. And when I... It's, it, it's, hard, it's hard to explain to somebody that, that doesn't do a creative, uh, you know, thing like that, that sometimes you go to work, like, what'd you get done? Right. Nothing, you know, nothing that I could show you. There's the creative a lot of, process doesn't really work like that. Yeah, I, I'm not going to be creative at twelve fifteen today. Yeah, for the next hour and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, all those times that you don't have something to show for it, if you're really going into it hardcore, there, there's gears turning inside you that right. need to need to turn. But 
sausage ain't going to come out for a while. And sometimes you need an extended period of, of solitude too. And, you know, with uh, with kids at home and, and a career going, it's, it's like, gosh, when am I going to have two days when the phone's not going off and somebody's not knocking on the bathroom door while I'm in there? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's true. And, and you know, speaking speaking of that kind of a thing, I don't know. Sometimes this can like really just kind of not make me feel super great but it does make me feel great in general thinking about you know I think that probably my biggest hero is, is Ponte I just mm. I really 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 love him and you know like his music and everything and uh, I I played with him last summer which is the first time I'd ever gotten to play with him and I was oh, okay. I was freaking out and super excited and went back in and started listening to all these records that he started putting out from like 1975 or 76 to like 80. That's sort of like the tour that he's been doing when he was on Atlantic. And it's, uh, it's daunting, man. He put out a record a year from 75 or 76 this is not counting I mean every year before that he was also putting out records but I'm just saying like just on Atlantic a record a year and two years he put out two records in one year and this isn't lazy stuff that he's writing no this isn't just throw it together so I have a tune no it's all original music of like epic grand proportion and only one of those years of the double album like two times he put out two records in one year only one time was it a live record like like the first or second year which is kind of cheating almost yeah yeah it was like two studio records in one year you know like feel so inadequate and then you know there's like a break between like 80 or 81 to 82 and then another run of like six or seven years of a record every year that's crazy guys just you know basically all original music I mean maybe in all of those in like 25 records there's like two you know cover tunes or something like that. anyway I'm, try- I'm, I'm trying to use that to not uh, you know beat my head into the ground about it but you know <laughs> to kind of like light the fire under my butt a little bit just right. be like okay alright you've had your time to adjust now to fatherhood and life and but how much of that time was he, was he on a bus and spending just Hours and hours a day looking out the window with the world rolling by. That's, right. There can be a lot of solitude there and a lot of a lot of good writing. That's true. That's true. And that, you know, back when you couldn't travel with your laptop and the garage band or logic or whatever, it's yeah, true. Um, Sitting out with staff paper, a lot of that problem. Yeah. I heard I heard a funny story from uh, I don't know if it was St- I think it was Stanley or it could have been the sound engineer because. Also, part of the time I played with Stanley, the sound engineer that worked with Stanley had been Jean-Luc's sound engineer for, okay. like, ten years. Um, and uh, he was saying that, like, yeah, there, they would, there was uh, at one point, you know, at the, the height of those tours and that, you know, those record sales, there was, like, you know, a bus or two, you know, like, a bus with the band and then two semi trailers going with them with all the equipment one with equipment the other semi trailer nothing but merch 
that's you know in live performance that's how you have to make a lot of your money and this is like 1980 yeah 1978 82 I don't know the, the heyday of live music right I mean I I can't even fathom can't fathom it's a lot of t-shirts yeah and LPs at that time yeah they probably lost a lot of those probably on the road like I'm sure probably a lot of warped broken yeah. ones shrinkage yeah so how do people find you where's what's your contact information your website and my website. Hold on, I'll wait for this. Uh... Yeah, because because we are still in New York City. <laughs> NYPD yeah. saving the world. My website is is my name, which is spelled C A C H B R O C K. I'll say that again. <laughs> C A C H B R O C K dot com, and that's the that's the best way to get in touch with me. And, and also, I have a Facebook fan page. You know, Zach Brock. That's pretty much it. Um, the, the emails that I get on my website are, that's my email account. So, like, I definitely get them. Awesome. Um, and, uh, I'm trying to get better at Facebook messages. Yeah. I'm working on it. <laughs> I, you know, I'm getting over my writer's block and I'm getting better at Facebook Messenger. Uh, yeah. So that's, uh, Not a big Instagram guy yet? Yeah, yeah. I do. I, I don't... Well, I guess I have to, you know, give myself over to messages on that too. But I definitely post stuff on Instagram. My Twitter account is really sad. I got to work on that. Um, if anybody out there wants to help me, Twitter, you know. I just feel like is not a great platform for mu- musicians. It's like Instagram, I think, is the best platform for us, and then Facebook. I like Instagram a lot, and I, I, I definitely, I post on that, and I try to put different stuff. I, I kind of treat my Facebook page now as I used to keep. I tried to keep a little bit of a blog page on my website, very minimal. Uh, but I basically switched that over, in concept at least, to sort of making my Facebook band page sort of my blog. Um, I haven't really started, you know, going too into that. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's always a question of, you know, what you put up on Facebook, like, who owns it? stuff like that you know I don't know if I'm gonna have to explore that a little bit more um but anyway in the in, in the meantime my website Facebook Instagram you know all that is there there's stuff up on YouTube but that's pretty sad I gotta I gotta seriously work on that man it's so much work keeping all that stuff going and, and then you know writing and practicing and playing and touring and being a dad and being yeah. a husband it's like gosh I know I gotta sleep sometime yeah yeah, it is. And I, you know, I've said this also now for a couple of years running. I've, you know how, like, when you have those realizations where you, you really realize something to be true, but you can't necessarily put it into practice for whatever reason? For me, I think that the role of, of the creative musician is just really shifted, you know? And it, it was already shifting, but at least, like, when I, when I started making CDs, when you started making CDs, it was like more or less the same process even though people in the old guard were like you put out your own CDs that's lame right remember that oh yeah you, you know you everybody get, you had to have a record deal to be cool exactly yeah it's like you were you weren't playing you weren't playing by the rules and so you were totally invalid so that's that's been gone for a long time thank god but um i think that the way that people seem to be thriving in sort of this new okay, distribution is not really so much of a problem anymore. Now it's more of like, 
okay, what you got? And, uh, you know, some people are embracing that and some people are rejecting it. I'm sort of caught in in the middle right now because I just haven't... uh, I'm very inspired to kind of embrace this, this, you know, form of creativity if it kind of keeps me in it. But it takes a little bit of time to rewire your brain. Right. And, uh, you know... That's for uh, that's for 2018, 2019, I yeah. guess. It's a constant process of, of reinvention. Yeah. Because the world is changing really fast yeah. for musicians. It really is. It is. It's, that, that, that's another hard thing, I think, is, you know, contemplating the technology. If you think, I think if you spend too much time worrying about the technology and the platform... Uh, it can be detrimental to the flow of the creativity, but yet you still have to be somewhat aware of it because it does change it. But you know, there could be no YouTube in two years, or right. you know, you just never. I mean, probably that's not going to be the case. But but at least if you have your video hat on, right. and you're and you're thinking like a sort of part-time director all the time in your life, that even when that platform changes, you know, you'll be. Doing this other the thing stuff. is, we're probably not going to go to a less sensory overload position from here. Yeah, right? yeah. It used to be that it was just a scratchy audio, and it became like this super high fidelity audio. Now, then you added in some some sort of in the '80s was sort of this crazy video-ish thing, and now it's all HD, and it's I mean everything is becoming more and more the magnifying glass. Yeah. Yep. It's probably not going back the other way. I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, you know, we're doing a podcast right now. Right. You know? Yeah. That's so it's just trying to get more into into everybody's space. Yeah. So. Well, hey, man, this has been great. Thanks so much Thank for you, meeting man. up with me. Really Absolutely. enjoyed it. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. All right. Thanks for joining us and for listening to my chat with Zach Brock. This is from Summer Dance off of his The Magic Number album. Be sure to swing by his website and catch him if he or any of his projects come through your town. I promise it'll be worth it. Hey, and we've got some more really cool interviews coming for you the rest of this year. I cannot wait for you guys to hear them. We'll see you next time on Rockstar Violinist. Rockstar Violinist.